mainstream media is dominated by the right and the left. The majority in the middle are left without a voice. You've reached the Conservative Hippie Podcast, a common sense look at life, the universe, and everything. Here's your host, Jay Frat, the Conservative Hippie. Yeah, yeah, that's me. Hello. Welcome to the Conservative Hippie Podcast, sponsored by Smokin' Jays and SmokinJays.com. I am here in the Smokin' Jays podcast studio in Olympia, Washington. I've got a special guest for this particular podcast. We're going to uh, take a step aside from the information fire hose digging and curiosity of our strange, bizarro political world right now. And we're going to talk with Charlie Sheldon, a uh, fellow Washingtonian and Pacific Northwesterner. He has led a terribly interesting life. When I think about Charlie Sheldon, I think of the song by Lars Fredrickson, The Viking, or I guess it's just Viking. But this guy has traveled all over the world. He's had many different hats. He's educated himself in many different ways. And just a terribly interesting guy. He is an author. Um, he retired in, I believe it was 2012, and then decided to go on a, on a ship work, working as a merchant sailor. Um, and then after that grand adventure, he decided to write a series of books called the Strong Heart Series with Strong Heart, Adrift, and Totem. He is a terribly interesting person. As he puts it, I have always been a writer always a hiker, trained as a wildlife biologist, lived in the Pacific Northwest, a husband, father, grandfather, and friend. He has been a graduate student teacher, commercial fisherman, house painter, fisheries consultant, treasure hunter, project planner, construction manager, merchant sailor, and even an executive for various seaports. So without further ado, let's bring on Charlie Sheldon. We're going to have a terribly interesting conversation today because Charlie has dove into topics that interest me greatly. We're going to be getting a a little deep, possibly a little philosophical, but uh, here he is. Without further ado, Charlie Sheldon. Charlie, hello. Thank you for taking the time to join me. Happy to be here. That is awesome. Let's let's try. You've got such a long story, and it's rich with many different hats. You've done many different things, and then you decide. That, well, I don't know. You said you've always been a writer, but you've published um, recently since since you retired uh, this book series. You know the um, help, help me out again with the name of your book series. It's called the Strong Heart Series. That's right, the Strong Heart Series with Strong Heart, Adrift, and now you've recently published Totem. Tell, tell us, let's just try to get started with, we're going to get very deep here today. Let's just start out with something a little <laughs> bit lighter. What drew you to publishing these books, this series? Uh, well, when I came to work out here in 1990. I, I came to work for uh, the Port of Seattle, actually, and very quickly became involved with a, an issue that they had to deal with on a regular basis, which was that the, the, the tribes, some Puget Sound tribes, 
had treaty rights to fish right in the port of Seattle and in the Duwamish River. And so there was a lot of potential conflict between fishing gear, gill nets, and these huge ships. And so there had to be a very delicate and complicated negotiation with two tribes, the Muckleshoot and Suquamish tribes. And I got very, very involved with that. Um, I thought it was very interesting. It's kind of, it's one of the most interesting parts of the Northwest that the, the culture of the first peoples is still so much within the modern culture that we have here. And so in the process of being involved with negotiating these agreements, which I did for nearly 20 years, the whole time I worked there nearly, I'd like to think, and I think I did learn a little bit about some of the history of this region and so on. And one of the things I learned very generally was that there does seem to be a a widely held view among the first peoples of the Americas that they have always been here. (laughs) They they didn't come over on the land bridge 12,000 years ago, like science says most people did. In fact, if you if you said to some people, uh, you've you've uh, you came over in the land bridge, that essentially says you're you've only been here for twelve thousand years, and therefore you are the youngest and most junior member of the family of peoples on the earth, which <laughs> can be seen, I think, quite rightfully, as an insult. <laughs> so, so I was just that legend interested me. There's there's it's just a legend. It's just not even a specific legend to tribes. It's just this belief. But I thought about it. Could it be true? How could it be true? And then I did a lot of hiking in the Olympics and I like the Olympics and there's some ancient sites in the Olympics too, that it's been used by people for thousands of years. I think some of the trails in the Olympics up in the, up in the Alpine meadows are actually trails that have been trod on for thousands of years. That's my view. I could be wrong. And so I I had this mixture of things, this ancient legend, this fascination with the geological history of the Northwest, this fascination with Olympic National Park. I like to tell ski stories. So I got this notion that I wanted to write a story about celebrating the park and poking at this ancient legend and also uh, looking at a coming-of-age quest sort of story where a young, ornery young girl finds her power in an impossible and unbelievable way, quite honestly. And so that's what started this. I, I, I had this idea. It was noodling around. But meanwhile, of course, I was very busy working. And, you know, you, the, I, I hate to say this, but if you're a bureaucrat and you're working for a public agency, the type of writing you do for your memos to the commission is just not the kind of writing that works in fiction at all. In fact, it makes it impossible. So it, anyway, to, to make a long story short, I, went, I changed jobs and went up to uh, Bellingham, Washington for a short time and to run the port up there. And I was in an apartment up there because my wife was working down here in Seattle. And during the evening, I started doing research on this story idea. And I filled up notebook after notebook with these story, this story idea. And then I, that job ended up in Bellingham and I went to sea again at 65 years old as a merchant sailor with the Sailors Union of the Pacific for four years because I needed to keep working. And I wanted to uh, do something as unpolitical as possible. And chipping rust is not very political. So, <laughs> so um, 
And I thought I could actually work on these stories when I was on these ships. That was in 2012. But you're on a ship. You don't, you either, you're steering watch or working or sleeping. You don't have any time and any time. And, but when I got back from the first voyage on the, the first ship I sailed on, I had some time between the, before the next ship. And that's when I actually started writing the story that became the first story in the series, Strongheart. But I wasn't starting to write a series. I just wanted to write this story. But then it became, <laughs> it became a series. And I can explain why it became a series if you care. But I mean, it was, it was, it was, it took the, the, the basic concepts behind the story are almost 30 years old. But it took me, when I really started working on it doing research, it's taken me 11 years to finish the series, I guess I could say. That's amazing. That's amazing. Tell me how I've I've always been a person that that scoffs at fiction and I say, Oh, I don't read fiction. I, I prefer nonfiction. I like to stay grounded. I have a very logical brain. I like to stay grounded in facts. But when I <laughs> when I researched you, uh, I see that you 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 gave yourself training in geology and you consider yourself a science and scientist in a lot of ways. Um in the way that you go after information, how do you blend factual scientific information, true facts, true research, with this fiction? With you know, so in in the end, you might be you. Some of your writing might give great insights and information into into the history of a topic, but yet it's published in this fiction setting. That's a great question, and. And uh, let me try to answer it. I, first of all, I think fiction. Let's just go back for a minute to fiction. In in my sense, fiction is the telling of stories, and part of the whole series that I've written is linked to this thesis that came to me as I was doing all this research. That the the way modern humans evolved. Remember, human beings and hominids. And modern humans, anatomically, the body size and the brain size has been around for probably five or 600,000 years, maybe longer. But people have only behaved as, quote, modern people for somewhere between 60 and maybe 150,000 years. Something happened, and they started burying the dead and um, um, using art and, and so on, and, and, and certainly speaking. And, and there's lots of theories how that might have happened. My theory is that what happened was that that different types of hominids from earlier eras, like Neanderthals and Denisovians and Heidelbergensis and Homo erectus, there's different types, they bred together because that's what people do. <laughs> they breed together. And somehow something happened in the wiring of the offspring's brains, and that's where they were able to carry their culture with stories now is there do i have any scientific basis for that no just an idea but uh that was the um the thesis so i i i'm writing a story and of course when you write a story the first thing is it has to be a story the the, the reader wants to know what happened and if you write a story to make a point with capital letters Right, or if you might write a story to present a point of view, right, with capital letters, you're going to lose the reader. 
because the reader's going to, readers are smart. They know when they're being lectured to, <laughs> and they know when they're being, you know, hectored and told to believe something. And so if, if you write like that, it's like reading a Sierra Club, Club pamphlet. You know, you're, you're, you're not going to be as engaged. Fiction's a wonderful way to engage people in imagining the unimaginable, in considering things that are not within dogma. So my style and my technique is, is actually what there's a name for it. It's called magic realism. And what it is, is it's a system developed by South American writers about a hundred and hundred years ago. And what they do is they present an otherwise perfectly normal world like the world is, but there's one or two things in that world they create that are magical, that are impossible, that are unbelievable. But they're presented sort of matter-of-factly. And if you read these books, you just go along with it because it's just part of the territory. Now, some readers, and you might be one of them, <laughs> who they just can't go there. You know, They just can't suspend disbelief enough to imagine that it's possible, for example, for an animal that's been extinct for 12,000 years to appear today, right? And those readers won't go any further, but most people accept it in fact they welcome it and so what i would say is i did all this research on glaciers on human development on dna and carl jung on joseph campbell i mean i it was wonderful for about three years and and i've written a story i've made it as true as i can in other words all the scientific information that's presented in the story usually in arguments between characters about when the ice ages happen and that sort of thing is true it's as true as i could make it but I have some magic realism in there, right? <laughs> and it's a mixture of the two. And it's it's really just a story. But hopefully, if I'm successful as an author, they'll finish reading the book and have enjoyed the book and the story. But they'll be provoked. And they might be asking a few questions like, is that possibly true what he suggested? Could it really be that that's what's possible? Then I think it's a success because then what you've done is you've, You've entertained people while they've read the story, but you've also, it stays with them when they leave, which is nice. You know, it's something to think about. And maybe, it's, you know, they say there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. And sometimes the way to skin a cat is not to be right out front and do it. It's to be a little bit clever about it and sort of gently suggest some things. And then the mind will take over. And when the person realizes that maybe there's some truth in it. They'll think it's his idea or her idea instead of what the author's idea was. So that's, I mean, that's a long way to answer your question. Did I answer your question? I think so. I, I, I really, I really enjoy that process of, of how you would apply um, well-researched scientific facts and then apply them to fiction writing to, to blend them into a story. It's very fascinating. You, you came to me, um, and we found each other, and there's there's a there's a mutual interest that that really piqued my curiosity because as for my my adult life, I'm 47 years old. Um, I've been very curious about ancient culture, and right. in particular, the ancient culture of culture of the Egyptians, the Mayans, right. and and you know I draw to it, and to me in my life. I've always been fascinated that more people aren't interested, that this topic isn't, isn't more prominent 
in our modern studies because something clearly was going on that we cannot explain, and I don't understand why we're not trying to investigate to understand better. You know, if, you know, whether you want to talk about the magnificence of the Egyptian pyramids, whether you want to mention that the, the similar pyramid structures are on different continents along the same parallel. And, yeah. and you know, <laughs> s- something you mentioned there that something—actually, uh, you mentioned it in your writings to me— where you know something is heretical, you know something is crazy um, until it's proven true, and we keep we keep bouncing back the 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 older our human species is on the planet, and you know even though science is is just as confident today as they were ten years ago, things change and they have to readjust. But it almost seems like we're always in denial of this readjustment that constantly occurs as we learn more. So I mean, there's a there's a lot there. It's not really a question, but you know, in your in diving into the Pacific Northwest tribes, is there anything that correlates to these ancient Egyptian cultures where you see conflicting archaeological data that might not go with the mainstream, with what's written in textbooks, but is on the cutting edge of what we're learning anew? Uh, actually, I think the answer to that question is is mostly no, and I'll explain why. I'm I'm I've been very careful in my books, very careful to not do a couple of things that I think are just an outrageous thing to do. I, I, I'm, I'm very careful to, to in fact, the, the people I have in my book with one exception who are actually native American, I'm not native American. I mean, there may be some in my family from eight generations ago, but I'm not, I'm not native American. And I don't want to appropriate another culture these days. This is a big thing right now. And so in an effort to be respectful of, let me say something else. Before uh, Europeans got to the Pacific Northwest, every square inch of ground on the Olympic Peninsula and all over the country was claimed by some other group of people. They didn't own property the way Westerners do, but it was theirs, okay? And and so um, they were displaced when the when the whites came in, and it's a I think it's a pretty horrible story, but that's that's the story that's the story. And I wanted to write about the the Olympic Peninsula, and you can't write about the Olympic Peninsula or Washington State without writing about the first peoples because that's the way it is out here. And so my way of threading this needle, and I'm not sure it works, but hopefully it's better, is that. I basically, I, the people who are really in my story, who are the tribal people, I, I I created a fictional tribe, a tribe that doesn't is not a treaty tribe in Washington. It doesn't exist. It's a small tribe, somewhere on the peninsula, and that's the tribe that I write about. So that I'm very carefully not writing about tribes that that are there and have their own legends and stuff. The other thing I'd say, Jay, is that. I'm not the you're talking about ancient Egyptians that was still in the post agricultural era of human development you know 7 8000 years ago I'm interested in in writing about way before that 
<laughs> I'm interested in writing about at the height of this ice age, or maybe during an earlier ice age, back before people had agriculture, as we know agriculture, back when in the period when huge glaciers were all over the earth, in the period when all these huge nasty animals roamed the country, and humans were not the apex predator. They were barely able to survive in little groups. And so I'm, I, I'm, my, my question or what I'm trying to write about is, is how did we become modern 70,000 years ago? What's a reasonable thesis? How could people have gotten here from Eurasia before the ice melted, which spoiler, it's along the coast. And so, um, it's a, it's, it's pre-tribes even what I'm, what I'm trying to talk about. Cause I'm asking the question, I'm, what I'm really trying to do in this. And remember, this is just a story. <laughs> it's not a treatise or a political polemic. It's a story, but woven into the story is this bunch of questions about how we became modern, where we became modern, what really happened. And it's, it's all built around this view I have that, you know, that one thing I think we've lost as a, a society in the last several hundred years, and certainly in the last hundred years, is any sense of a greater, a power greater than ourselves and humility. We've just lost that because we rule everything now. We rule the earth. We're, we're changing the earth. But for most of human development, if my thesis is right, there weren't very many and they barely survived out of the way of these bad animals. And oftentimes small groups were wiped out, I think, right to a person. And, and they barely hung on. I think for all the hundreds of thousands of years of our evolution, we were barely hanging on, having to be really careful, having to be cautious. You talk about being you know, conservative. This wasn't being politically conservative. This was being socially and economically conservative because they had to be right and and that's where the wisdom comes because they knew they didn't know everything <laughs> you know they they didn't know everything and sometimes i wish today in fact when i was writing this this book i was wrestling with which of the deadly sins are the worst and i came up with this idea that there's an eighth deadly sin or maybe really the first deadly sin which nobody talks about, and that's the sin of zealotry, in my opinion. You know, those people who are sure they're right and know all the answers and are insistent on telling other people the way to think, how to think and what to do. And I think that's the greatest danger we face. And so I was trying to present my view of the ancient world where I think there was a lot of humility. It was a violent, deadly, vicious world. I mean, human beings are the same, I think, now as they were 100,000 years ago, which is to say <laughs> we're creative and we're, at, we're um, empathetic in some cases and we're heroes, but we're also murderers and adulterers and sneaky and cheaters and, and thieves. I mean, humans are, <laughs> humans are both, really. And, and how do you you know, how do you control all that? I guess is a, I'm not trying to suggest how to control it, but I'm trying to write a story that 
tries to suggest in a gentle way, maybe we don't know everything we think we know. All huge scientific theories always get upended by the next theory eventually over periods of years and years. And let's just admit that we don't know all the answers, which, which might lead then to being a little more cautious about decisions we make or, or whatever, whatever. So that's, that's kind of the, the basis. But again, in the end, it's a, this is really just a story about a ornery young girl who finds her power in an impossible way. And in the way she finds her power, I get to go deeply into this ancient world and an ancient way of life that happened before the ice, long before the ice melted. And in in specific to the Pacific Northwest region, uh, you're talking about yes. the the big Missoula flood, um, where the where the glacier melted. Is am I correct in that? Yeah, you you are correct in that. Although, here's here's the other piece of it, which is which is even to me more interesting. We've been in a we've been in a geologic era of glaciation for over two million years, the Pleistocene. And during that period, there have been 20, every 100,000 years, more or less, 20 glacial advances and retreats, okay? And we're now, uh, we've been in the, in the current warm time between glaciations, we've been in it for 10,000 years, right? Yeah. And this is leaving aside the argument about whether humans are cooking the earth, okay? Mm -hmm. And from a geological point of view, this warm period will end sometime between now and 5,000 years from now, and it will get cold again and last for another 100,000 years. Now, during those cold periods of roughly 80 or 90,000 years, you have lots of warm ice advances and retreats. Overall, it's quite a bit colder than it is today, but there's warm in the summer and, you know, but the sea level goes up and down and so on. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but from, from, from say 10,000, 11,000 years ago, back to almost a hundred and hundred thousand years ago, there were big bunches of ice all over the continent, not as bad as the maximum, but you know, sea level was a lot lower. People lived on the coast. There's no evidence because it's all buried in the ocean right now, I think. And people couldn't get inland because of the ice, right? So anyway, this, <laughs> this is all total guesswork on my part. There's very little evidence for anything, you know? And that's the other irony of all this is people build these elaborate theories about the way it must have been based on a very few pieces of information. Because that's what we do. We we speculate and imagine things and and create worlds out of nothing. Yeah, and and, and Char- <laughs> Charlie, let me interrupt you for something, and and I want to translate in some ways. Um, we are all subjects of some of our own peculiarities, the things that we think are important, right? You know, I've got right. a. I get very upset with myself with hypocrisy. I, I don't like hypocrisy, and so I try not to be hypocritical. You know, we all are hypocritical, but that's something particular to me. Uh, right. I, I sense from you that you're really big on humility and honesty and in, in that, in information. And so I want to translate to the people listening that 
that you might stop and say, hey, hey, uh, you know, this is all guesswork. At the same time, there are scientists out there that might present something. What you're saying is there are scientists out there that might present a picture of something where they have less or a little more information than you do, and instead of them saying, oh, you know, this is guesswork, they try to uh, present their theory um, as science because there's a degree behind it. You have studied quite a bit, so, you know, I just, I want to, I just wanted to interject there, and you're being, you know, you're, you're presenting your own humility um, in downgrading the information that you're presenting, is, is my point. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's nice to say. I think, I think, I think the problem, part of the problem here, and this, when I was in graduate school, which to you would be, you know, a, a century ago, but <laughs> when I, when I, when I, you know, you know, when I was in, I was in graduate school in 1969 until 1971, and that was the period when the National Environmental Policy Act was passed and the Clean Water Act was passed. And Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring. It was just the start of the environmental movement, right? And there, and you know, people were concerned, of course, about everything and and uh, and, and worried about it. And and but but back then, in science, I, I, this is a guess on my part because I don't know. I mean, my father was also a scientist. He was a wildlife biologist too. He studied um, animals in New England, and he was a wildlife biologist and. You know, they got a little funding from the government and they, they weren't paid very much money, but it was a civil service job and they did research. Like my dad's students did research on beavers and and bobcat, right? I mean, it was very interesting. And that was wildlife biology. I think what's happened now, and maybe it's the same, but maybe not, is we've got these systems where private industry is also funding a lot of research and i think what's happening is of course if you're a if you're let's just take as an example today let's say you're a good scientist and you come out of graduate school and you decide based on your thesis that because of the this isn't my view by the way but it's close to my view if you look at the malkinovich geological cycles it's going to get cold again pretty quick <laughs> you know, it's the, the power, it's going to get cold. And that's very contrary to the dogma and evidence that people have gathered that says, oh, no, we're cooking the earth. It's worse than it's ever been, and it's going to get worse. And by the way, it's not worse than it's ever been. It was two or three degrees warmer than it is today at the height of the Eemian 110,000 years ago. And there was no Arctic ice up there then either. Which is not to say that it's not happening now. I just, I'm just saying that you know, again, this we need to deal with what we know. Yes. And so, if you're a scientist and you come up with a contrary point of view from what the dogma is today, where are you going to get research money? How can you get your your thesis heard, right? And so, the power of groupthink and the power of the dogma of the current view is very, very strong. Yeah, right. The, and that's not, not criticizing anybody. It's just the way, cause that's the way we're human beings, right? You're going to make a living. And so, for example, I mean, people don't like to think about this, but there was a period not so long ago, well, 400 years ago, 
when if you said the earth, the earth was anything other than flat, they burned you at the stake, <laughs> right? Because you were contradicting the dogma, which was the earth is flat and the earth is the center of the universe. And that wasn't scientific. That was religious space. But nevertheless, that's the, the point. Or now you see this huge argument going on right now about where this coronavirus came from. Did it come out of a lab or come out of the animals or the people? And there are vested interests that want to promote one narrative or the other. And all of which is to say that it's not easy to counteract the prevailing view, right? It's just not easy. It's just as hard for scientists as for anybody else. And, and, but they're all theories. I mean, I guess you could say that, that, you know, when you have a, you have a theory about um, water pollution, let's say, based on models you've developed that are supposed to reflect reality, they may be right, they probably are right, but they're a computer model that's not the reality. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so all of this, all of this is to say, <laughs> to say that to me, when I talk about humility, it isn't rolling over and letting somebody walk over you at all. It's basically just having the wisdom to know that maybe you don't have all the answers. <laughs> yeah. True. And, and and maybe there's maybe there's another way to look at this. And and unfortunately, with all the shouting that's going on, I think right now between one extreme or the other extreme, my sense is all the people in the middle are just kind of got their heads down, hanging on. Yes, <laughs> being know? being pulled one way to the other. But yeah, before, before, I, before we get off that topic, I I do think you know you talk about humility. Talk, transparency and disclosure. Uh, when it comes to scientific information, you know, it would be nice if when a paper was presented, it had um, transparency and full disclosure. So, for example, if you if you read a paper on the effects of sugar, you know, if that was funded by Coca Cola, it it should have like a little sponsorship stamp of Coca Cola on it. And oh, absolutely. We, we need that, more, yeah. that that there. There's a whole hidden structure that you're you're talking about that that comes from the corporate funding of the scientific research and what can be propped up and what can be buried and pushed down. That's correct. And that's, I mean, the, the one side of that is that with, with government funding becoming scarce, people are forced to turn to billionaires and corporations for money. And people don't usually want to give money away without some payoff. You know, I mean, I, I don't, I think that I, sometimes I wonder, Jay, if there's going to come a time not so far in the future when people are going to look at each other and, you know, after they close the door and whisper to each other and say, you know, there used to be a time they called it the enlightenment when you actually found evidence for a point of view instead of the strength of your belief. Yeah. <laughs> but that, but that era ended. <laughs> it kind of feels like that's ending. Anyway, I, I keep, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm the worst kind of author or scientist in a way because I'm trained as a wildlife biologist and resource manager. And I did a little of that. And I got involved in fisheries issues with the 200 mile limit. And I know something about wildlife biology, but I, I'm not a researcher. I'm not a, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist as such. I'm, I'm a guy who likes to spin yarns. 
but I want them, you know, the, the story won't be, you won't want to read my story unless you think it's as true as possible. You want to have the confidence that if I'm presenting some, if I say in my story that so-and-so, Malkovich had this theory that every 100,000 years the Ice Ages were created, you want to have a sense that that's really true. You know, that's not totally made up, I think. Um, and and uh, to that degree, I've tried to do that. So, so when I do have my my magic realism come in, which is basically these impossible animals appearing in the present, you know, there's I offer some I offer some reasons why that could happen that are reasonable. For example, I'm not giving away anything here. So in the first book, Strongheart, Sarah's dragged off on this camping trip into the park, right? And she she likes to sketch things. And the second night out, she goes up the trail and she comes back with this weird expression on her face and she's drawn a bear. And the people with her who know something about bears say, well, that's a great drawing, Sarah, but that doesn't look like any bear we've ever seen. It's not a black bear. And then later on, one of those characters says, the reason we don't recognize that bear is that she drew a short-faced bear, which went extinct 12,000 years ago. <laughs> and nobody believes her. And she gets pissed off and... Then she disappears, and that's when the, the story begins. But later on, in talking about, you know, so could a bear, how could a bear travel in time? But then there's another thesis that I came up with, <laughs> right? This, I, this is where the danger of a little information, but I think it's reasonable. And it goes like this In our DNA, in any animal's DNA, only about 3% of the DNA is what's called coding DNA. And, you know, it's used to make you. Your hair the color it is it's used to make your eyes the color they are right 97 percent of the dna they don't know what it does that's why they, some people call it junk dna because they don't know what it does it's there it's it's volumes of material that's there and so i have two questions that i ask about that both of which may be relevant in the stories that i write one of them is maybe it's possible for this junk dna to somehow contain ancestral memories right and the other is maybe this ancestral DNA has triggers that when the climate changes, animals revert to earlier forms so that, you know, if you're a black bear in the Olympic Park and it, it starts looking like maybe it's going to get cold, that bear kind of morphs into a short-faced bear. Now, um, that may sound ridiculous, but it's actually not ridiculous because in the north, you have polar bears and you have Alaskan brown bears, and they're separated by hundreds of miles of tundra, so they never encounter each other. But if you put them together in a zoo and breed them, the offspring they produce is viable. It can raise offspring too. So are Alaska bear, brown bears and polar bears separate species, or are they versions of the same species that's adapted because of the environment? Yes. Anyway, that's... That's the tortured thinking that I go through when I write my stories. <laughs> no, I like it. I like to learn about that process. Um, let, let, let me let me try to let me try to bring it back and to try to get into this this discussion again because I thought it was fascinating. Again, you were talking about the Pacific Northwest tribes, uh, in particular Washington. You're talking about coastal communities, and you're uh, the fact. The evidence that's built in there is that the ocean levels were what were much lower during the glacier right. stage. And yet right. there were habitable 
land masses, those are currently under the water. The coastal communities are under the water. And if you look at a topographical map, just to back Charlie up, uh, for several miles out of, say, the Washington coast, there is a shelf. Well, what happens if that ocean that we know is the ocean uh, is actually several miles deeper? That shelf is actually the land where the inhabitants would be, and thus... You know, after thousands of years, uh, you you would have no recollection of them, and and I want to tie it back to the Egyptians in that in the in my studies, the thing that I find is fascinating, as you point out, science is true until science proves something else, and then that science becomes true. Um, they they've actually theorized and found just due to. Um, water erosion that they think some of the structures in Egypt are actually tens of thousands of years older than 5,000, 7,000, which is currently um, uh, established uh, truth. And so I don't think that there's anything that, that would say that it's not plausible that these Pacific Northwestern tribes lived on the coast, which is no longer the coast anymore, and, and were there. What evidence do you have, or uh, have you heard? You know, you mentioned stories of the First Nations people saying they've always been here. They didn't, you know, in this little story we've read in textbooks that explains everything perfectly to us, where they walked over this land bridge. Right, You're saying right. it's possible that's Hui. And I've always said, hey, why is it that we all have to come from Africa? All of us have to come from Africa. I don't understand one plant species pops up on one continent, another plant species pops up on another continent. Why couldn't we have humans that developed on different continents, um, or even when, well, or even when the continents were together before that? You know, h- help me out here, Charlie. You're you're more studied in this. You see where I'm going well, with this? Yeah. Well, I would say is first of all. Again, if the evidence that we have, the skeletal evidence that we have, right, and the DNA evidence that we have, suggests very strongly that hominids arose in Africa or maybe the Middle East or probably Africa and then covered the world from there. That's and 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 that somewhere around. 200,000 years ago or thereabouts, they spread over the world. Although an earlier version of hominid called Homo erectus, which may have mastered fire and had small teeth, which assume they cooked their food, smaller brains than we have, but not much smaller. They lasted for almost 2 million years. And they've they were they've been found in Indonesia and China and Africa and Europe, not the Americas. No skeletal remains have been found in the Americas older than about 10,000 years old, none. I'm not saying they aren't there, but now back to the lowered sea level question. Um, the theory was, has been that, that for the land bridge and the population here, that the people came over the land bridge into Alaska and the Yukon, and then were blocked by the great ice sheet over all of Canada. And only when a portion of that ice sheet melted were they able to race south and populate North and South America. And that's when they killed off all the big animals. And it's true, all the big animals died about 11 or 12,000 years ago. But there's another thesis that, that's gained some currency, which is that ancient people were pretty good mariners. They could 
they could build boats and canoes, and they were even able to fish offshore out of sight of land 40,000 years ago. There's evidence of that in Timor and Indonesia because they found evidence of tuna fish that people had eaten that you have to go off deep sea to catch. And so I'm thinking that people, you know, you know, you know the weather, you know the tides. They could wander, they could travel the coast. And you're absolutely right. The sea levels were lower. They were as much, and you aren't going to believe this, but the sea levels were as much as 360 feet lower than they are today, right? Yeah. And that's a lot. And you're right. A lot of ridges that are now buried but, but beneath 50 fathoms of water would have been little coastal islands, right? Mm-hmm. And it just seems that it's just as possible that people could have gone island to island along that lowered coastline right? And they're protected from the big animals because they're on an island and that sort of thing. And they could have done that um, very early. Now, yeah, there were tongues of ice coming into the ocean in different places, and it's pretty tricky and so on, but it's possible. And there's some evidence, this, this archaeologist Daryl Fedgey and did work around Haida Gwaii up in Canada, and they found evidence of a village of Haida people in under 50 feet of water off the Haida Gwaii, which showed that at some point the water, when sea level was 50 feet lower, there were people living there, right? So if you, if you, if you think this is, could be wrong, <laughs> but if you think that people back then were stalked by all these big animals and they had to stay in fairly secure places, which were either remote little islands or refugees surrounded by ice where the big animals couldn't get there, and oftentimes whole groups were wiped out, they could have lived for tens of thousands of years in a very small number, right? Just just along the shore. And there wouldn't be evidence of people in Minnesota or Kansas or anywhere else. So we don't, I mean, again, we, we've, we've, in the last 20 years, we've found out huge amount of information about all these other hominid groups like Denis, Denisovians and Florensis and, I mean, they, they keep finding new versions, and they're not sure whether they're new versions or the same version, just looking a little different. But I mean, one of the oldest one of the oldest skeletal remains of the most modern of a modern human was found in Harbin, which is in northeastern China. I mean, it's closer to Alaska than it is to the Middle East. So, I mean, again, <laughs> we don't know. My, I have a. Here's my thesis, which, of course, I'll probably die before this happens, is that I wrote this story and I, I'd say to my friends, you know, my thesis is that people arose here. But in order to prove it, you'd have to have an unmistakable documented aged find, you know, that could withstand all the blows that will be thrown at it. And I said, well, the good Lord's got a sense of humor. I'm going to write these stories. I'll get them out there. And then they're going to find an 80,000-year-old skeleton and utah or somewhere you know <laughs> and then i'll be right <laughs> but <laughs> excuse me so i don't know if that answers your question but i think that you're you're right there's a whole there's a whole nother argument that can be made that i don't even want to get into that when darwin came out with his theory of evolution and the survival of the fittest I don't think it's coincidental that that same period there was a huge justification being created for the colonization of the rest of the world by European powers, right? In other words, they found a scientific theory that basically supported their social behavior 
yeah. of wiping out all these indigenous people, right? And and so I don't know whether scientific theory predates social change or is a, the belief in dogma is a function of social change. I just don't know. But I know this, that I think there's been an assumption that with all of the technological development in the last 150 years, that somehow we humans have similarly changed from what we were. And I don't think that's the case at all. Yeah, there's, right? a, there's a lot of hubris in a modern society. And, and I, keep bringing it, I keep bringing it back to like the Egyptians, where there's some sort of technology, there was some sort of building method, there was something to their culture that we don't understand, that it would take the height of our engineers to duplicate it, and right. yet, through hubris, we consider ourselves more technologically advanced, more wise, more evolved, uh, uh, just to borrow that, in in. It's very silly, you know, and, and with more humility, if we investigated, we might find that there was ancient knowledge that has been lost somewhere along the way um, due to the expansion of our ego, uh, to, to put it, uh, to, to back up your point earlier of, of why we're not investigating more. And how, how do we get it back? You, I believe you said you're you, uh, 74 years on this planet. Is that accurate? That, is, that so, is unfortunately the case. <laughs> so how so how do we get how do we get back to more humility and more empathy and more search for truth without needing um, some authoritative figure to spoon feed it to us? Whoa, I don't know. That's the, I, that's a hard one. Um, it's easy to say. Well, we need to make sure that our kids are taught in school how to think critically and how to, you know, you need a shared understanding of what truth is. I mean, when, when you have people who feel that the stronger they feel about something, the truer it must be, that that's a, a, a big problem <laughs> because, you know, logic doesn't necessarily work with those. I think, I think this, I don't know if we will get back. I mean, my, I have a fairly, I have to say that all of my books are, I don't think my books are dark. They're violent because the, I think the world was and is violent. But I think the people are pretty true and trying to do their best. But I, I think that one thing I think that we're not frightened enough of and we need to be more frightened of is we, we in the same period that we've had all these technological advancements and uh, you know, nuclear power, which some people would argue is not an advancement, but I talk about technology. I mean, going to space and the internet, and I mean, you, you, you the list is in nearly endless, right? And yeah. the communication systems and transportation systems. At the same time, this last 150 years has been like the bloodiest 150 years in the history of humanity. You know, we've had two world wars and all these other wars and all these deaths by disease and deaths by poverty and famines and Right. And so who's to say that we're any better off, <laughs> you know? And so I think it, there needs to be, I don't know how to say this, but if people, you know, take care of your own house first, take care of your neighborhood first, you know, just try to listen and, and, you know, call bullshit when you see it. I mean, that's the other piece of this is that, 
but it's getting to the point now and you know in in professional fields jay and i think politically as well where there heresy is reemerged you know things you cannot say right yeah. if you say something shocking you'll be exiled you'll be fired you'll be denied your phd right and so th th that which must not be spoken well you know that's not very encouraging no <laughs> so i don't i don't know what I, I i just again my hope my hope really is that that i hope more people read stories like my stories and just just try to have a little fun reading and imagining things but but i think that i still think that the vast bulk of people are just trying to get by you know they're just trying to earn a living they're just trying to raise their kids they're just trying to make sure that they're going to be okay when they retire they're right trying to stay healthy but at the same time a vast proportion of people are just struggling to you know to make it day to day you know yeah. when you're struggling to make it day to day you don't have time to <laughs> you know when i was on that ship working on the ship i wanted to write i had no time to write right i was just we worked you know when you work for a year if you work a 40 hour week in a year you work 2080 hours that's how 52 weeks right yeah. you have 2080 hours the first trip i took on this container ship we were gone 205 days right three round trips to singapore and back from new york i worked 2780 hours <laughs> so well, figure it out <laughs> i didn't have time to do anything yeah and anyway so I, I i can't be that hopeful i wish i could be i i just think that but i do think there's this yearning for people to just you know lower the temperature and just kind of relax a little bit and and uh maybe that will well up i don't know absolutely there's there's lots of uh infinite possibilities um but there it's often there are dark possibilities staring us right in the face but we need more more humility more empathy more exploration all of these things are uh, promoted and exemplified by Charlie Sheldon. Charlie, author of Strong Heart series. Um, I've got links in the show notes. Charlie, I really enjoyed um, our discussion, and I thank you for taking the time today uh, to talk with me. Well, thank you, and I'm, I'm glad I got here in time. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I really appreciate that, and, and uh, I've enjoyed our conversation. And uh, tell me um w will you let me know when you've posted this or put it up or whatever it is you do absolutely we will okay. send you links to emails and all that charlie okay. i'm in olympia washington so i'm at the bottom oh. of the puget sound i would assume that you're living out there on the olympic peninsula where, where do you reside actually no i'm i'm actually gonna i'm in tacoma okay um i i was in seattle for about 20 years and my wife and i moved here to tacoma three years ago and i love it here and I was, I was literally, because I was completely confused as to time until I saw the phone signal, I'm dressed in my exercise clothing because I was about to go out and go rowing on Commencement Bay for exercise. Beautiful. <laughs> so, so, 
No, I mean, I, it's nice. I mean, you know, and I, I can't, I can't tell you the number of times when I've been out there rowing or walking around or whatever you do, or going out to the peninsula thinking how lucky we are to be in this beautiful part of the world. I've, you know, I've, it's just I've always said that. It's I've unbelievable. Always... I, I don't travel. I don't travel a lot. I, I explore through the internet and books. Yeah. But uh, you know, I get to live next to the ocean, uh, large lakes, and volcanoes. I mean, what what could be better? And I've got a giant <laughs> giant river. Uh, you know, we we have so much in the Pacific Northwest, and I feel very blessed to have uh, grown up here. And I'm not interested in moving anytime soon. Charlie, maybe maybe we'll get in contact. I would love for you to be a guide on a hike on the on the uh, the peninsula. I've done most of my hiking in Southwest Washington and the Gifford Pinchot and Rainier oh. National Forest. So you know, I would I would love someday for you and I to get out there on the Olympic Peninsula and you can show me some of your spots. Okay, well you'd have to go slowly because you know I'm a creaky old guy and I can't go very fast. You know. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks very much. I've enjoyed talking with you and stay in touch. And I look forward to seeing, you know, when you get the thing posted. And again, all I was trying to do really was tell a story and celebrate this peninsula, this part of the world, the power of ancient legends and the strength of an ornery young girl. I love it. Thank you, Charlie. All right. Thanks very much. Let's be friends. We're all on this cosmic spaceship together. Subscribe and share the Conservative Hippie Podcast. Visit our sponsors, SmokeAndJays.com. Everything for your smoke and lifestyle. StonerHoroscopes.com. Adora Zen dishes cosmic vibes for the stoner at heart. KickFromTheSpot.com. Soccer is American.